0: Okay, uh, we are in Chapter 11 tonight and 12, and I think we'll do well in covering that material. Uh, As always, your comments are welcomed. Uh, Your questions are welcome. Uh, We'll shift them to Mitch, uh, who will teach again at some point, I'm sure. Um, But if not, Mitch is the answer person. We made reference to, three weeks ago, the tunnel... Or the aqueduct or the waterway of Hezekiah. And we asked if there was anyone who had been there, and we had people that had seen it or maybe had heard of it or whatever. But I wanted to share this picture here. Now, this is a very clear picture. I know you can all see exactly who that is in there. But that's uh, our own Daniel and Farley Chandler. Is that both of you in there, or just both one of you in there? I think actually
1: I'm the one taking the picture.
0: Oh. Okay. All right, so there's Farley. So. And then, So he came up to me afterwards and he said, hey, we've been there too. Oh, we've seen it before. So I just wanted to share that kind of just a neat thing. One of those interesting things in history and archaeology that you can experience and see with your own eyes. And uh, hopefully one day maybe we'll get a chance to, to see that. Uh, all right. Let's go ahead to our text in chapter 11. I made reference to chapter 11 two weeks ago and uh, made a comment about the idea that there are certain chapters that you you dread getting to there are certain accounts in the lives of people that you like oh is this gonna you almost wonder is there is there going to be a change in his decisions or will there be a change in her choices then again, why would we not want chapter 11 to be excluded from the text? And we talked about that a few weeks ago, but why is it important to have 11 in here? And if you got a short comment, just uh, yell it out. If it's something more lengthy, wait for the microphone, but... We see the good and the bad, the and the bad because if you haven't read ahead, or maybe you're new to the study of Second Samuel, and that's fine if you are, uh, chapter 11 is, is not the good side. Of David. What else? A test of faith. Okay, a test of faith. Absolutely. So the interactions that he's going to have with the prophet, whose name is? Nathan is a very important interaction. We're going to talk about Nathan a little bit. We're going to talk about David quite a bit tonight. We are now well into the life of David in terms of the first couple of chapters of 2 Samuel being more introductory information. Now we're getting into the real heart of everything that David is about. The good and like uh, our own, One of our own 17 Davids said uh, uh, the bad as well. Anything else about chapter 11, just by way of introduction, that you wanted to say? Yeah, uh, yeah Brother Mitch, I'm sorry. The microphone's coming to you here, Mitch. Any, anything else while we're waiting for Mitch? All right, Brother Mitch. I
1: was just going to say you'd want it in there because it's the truth. Um, if it's not in there, then it doesn't give an accurate depiction of David.
0: Absolutely. And we are not afraid of the truth. The truth is sometimes in our own lives a difficult thing to receive, and but we need to receive it. We need Nathans in our lives who are going to be willing to say the hard things and to say the difficult things to us. So let's get into the text, and we're not going to read all twenty-seven verses or all thirty-one verses, but we'll read maybe a third of the text together. But it says it happened in the spring of the year. At the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, which would have been one of their chief major cities. And then that last sentence that on the surface, without really appreciating it, you might say, well, why is that even in there? But David remained in or at Jerusalem. So verse 1 is, it seems to me, a continuation of the account of chapter 10, uh, which is what Mitch took you through, uh, where the Ammonites and the Syrians come together and David is fighting them. And even though the odds seem to be, not seem, the odds are against David and his men, great success comes to the Lord and to the Lord's people. Uh, Let's just start with some clear applications. Uh, We're going to have three or four big... Kind of global applications at the conclusion, but David remained at Jerusalem. There's at least, and I'm just just thinking quickly, two or three things that we learned from that. Is there something that we can appreciate from that statement without giving away too much of the story going forward? David where he should have been as the king. Very good. First and foremost, David was not in the right place. And we're going to, I think, yep, in fact, the very end of our study, we're going to revisit that. David as king should have been with, uh, with the, the warriors, with the fighters, in the thick of the fight. He should have been a part of that. Other things, like I said, I could rattle off two or three, but that's one of them. There are other things that we learned just from this one little statement? The
1: danger
0: of Idleness. Idleness. Idleness is is a and it's not I D O L N E S S. I don't think is what he's talking about. Though idleness can be idleness. Think about that. Huh? Talk about English being hard. Yeah. Um, but being idle, idle. Anything else? Those are those are the two or three things that came to mind. Brother Bruce.
2: Mm-hmm. he was there by himself uh and didn't have perhaps the support of people who could have uh, even if they had that is a good uh, remained in jerusalem to
0: encourage him not to go where he went right when we are by ourselves and we we cannot be with other uh spiritual family a hundred percent of the time it's just impossible We've got to make a living. We've got to interact with a world that is void of Christ. But when you're with other Christians, it is easy or easier to resist temptation, to not go to those places, to not look at those things, to not engage in that kind of communication, whatever the case would be. It's, it just facilitates, I'm going to be on my best behavior. I'm around a good influence here. When you are alone and separated from the, the people that are there to build you up like Bruce talks about – You run the risk of getting yourself in trouble, which is one of the reasons. It's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons why uh, I think there's wisdom in coming together on occasions like a Wednesday evening. It's not just for the purpose of encouraging one another. We're here to strengthen ourselves in truth, to rebuke one another uh, with the word and with the truth because we need the truth like Mitch talked about a few moments ago. Okay? All right. Let's go ahead and read verses two through five. I do want to read all four of those verses for a purpose in what I would call the progression of sin. Sin is the kind of thing that starts, develops, finishes, starts, develops, gets bigger, and then it just kind of uh, snowballs from there. It happened one evening. That David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers, took her. She came to him. He lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house. The woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said i am with child what do i mean by the progression of sin i I already kind of gave it away but how do we see that from these four simple verses Brother, uh, brother eric up here in the front uh cameron and then brother david creech we'll go to eric and then uh david after that
2: well james chapter one really lays out a progression of sin uh
0: verses 12 13 14 and this follows that progression I mean, you can see it very clearly. Had David chosen to look away when he saw her, this would have all ended, and Mm -hmm. lust would not have taken over, and it would not have progressed uh, as it did,
2: and then it just compounded on itself.
0: Excellent thought. While we're going over here to David, I'll put up my next little line there, which makes reference to James chapter 1. We're going to read a couple of verses there because that's a really great text, and there's a couple of points we can make about that, but David Creech.
3: I was going to say the same thing, uh, but it talks about we're, we're, we're drawn
2: away by our own desires. And it says that when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it brings forth death.
0: Very good. Uh, Mr. Nita, over here.
2: Psalms 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So there's a progression. You walk, you stand, you sit.
0: Very good. Great passage is Psalm 1 to illustrate that. Maybe instead of progression, I should have used the word Regression. Uh, but you understand the point that I'm making here. Psalm 1 is an excellent passage. And I'm glad that both David and Eric brought up James chapter 1. One of the things that jumped out to me in James chapter 1, it was, at least a number of years ago, was pointed out to me is when you think about, uh, this is a little bit off the topic, but I think it's a very important point to make, take 30 seconds to make this point. And that is Satan uses uh, his abilities to tempt us and to get us to do wrong. And without a doubt, Satan was involved in 2 Samuel chapter 11. No doubt about that. But you'll notice that in the passage that Eric and David both quoted from, James chapter 1 verses 12 through 15, that it doesn't use the term Satan or make reference to Satan. But each one is tempted by his own desires. And then it brings forth that digression or progression. So we, if we're not careful, can make life too easy for Satan. And just use the, the desires that we have. And he says, I'm just going to sit back and watch a show and eat popcorn. Because they're going to do it to themselves. We need to make life difficult for Satan. And make him have to really work at, at harming us, uh, so to speak. Uh, Brother Sam up here. The other passage that I'll mention here is, is uh, I think it was David or er- Eric used the word lust. Uh, what does Jesus say in Matthew 5 verse 27, 28 in short? Sam, if you know, you can go ahead and say If you don't know, that's fine, too. If you lust in your heart, you have already what? Sin. You've already sinned. You've already committed the adultery. And the whole point there is the context of Jesus saying, you can't just say, I didn't punch the guy's lights out. I didn't sin with fornication. He says, you've got to stop your heart before it gets ahead of your actions. So, Brother Sam.
3: I forget what I was going to say. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sure <laughs> no, it was going to oh, be really good, too. No, I remember um there are two people here that could have stopped this. Very good. Two of them. Both of them could have said no at any point. So I know sometimes, you know, people people in the past I've heard have said, well, you know, what was she doing? You know, what she shouldn't have been doing. it. Well, what was David doing? I mean you can't blame one or the other. It's it's both of them. Yeah. Now there there may have been reasons why she didn't say no she could have been afraid to say no
0: to the king sure. you, you know but that's a good point they both bear fault right that, that's right
3: that's right, right.
0: very good uh, brother Mitch over here right behind you Cameron just, just
1: to you know piggyback off that it, I mean
0: that's what Abigail
1: did right like David had the same issue uh he was going to commit sin he was going to take vengeance on Nabal but Abigail is the one who stopped him right so in in a similar fashion Bathsheba could have stopped him
0: yeah very good And, again, it goes back to the point that Bruce made. If we keep ourselves surrounded with godly people who are of the faith and who will influence us in positive ways, it lessens the likelihood of us being involved in the things that we otherwise should refrain from. So David reacts to this. What should should verse 6 say if we could rewrite it for David's benefit? What's the next Statement or two. Say again. He, well, I'm I, a, after the fact. Well, sure, well, I, I'm glad that Nate brought that up. Let's go. Let's go back to verses two and three. The best option would be to rewind time and say, OK, there's something there that tempts me. And like uh, either Eric or Sam said this moment or so ago, I'm going to turn away. The fact that he saw something that was attractive, whether that be physically in terms of a uh, physical nature or something that tempts you, uh, maybe oh, I'd sure like to have that big raise, but it's going to require me to uh, drink with my buddies at work, or whatever the case may be. The fact that we recognize that appeals to me is that sinful. Okay, at its very core, that's that's just me saying oh. Okay, but like Eric, I think it was Eric said, turn away, go back, and do something else. And, and don't be idle, which is what uh, David Bunning said a few moments ago. So I like the point that, that Nate Gochi makes. Flee fornication. Flee fornication. right? Yeah, very good. We just talked about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, right? Very late in chapter 6. Very good. So in verse 5, she says, I am with child What should now here's now here's my question. What should David's response been at this point in verse six? I have sinned. Uh, I have sinned. He'll get to that point right in chapter twelve, but it takes a long time, both in the narrative and perhaps in the story, for that to happen. He should have said, "I'm wrong. I've done wrong, and I'm going to God directly and asking for forgiveness." Mm -hmm. Um, that's that's the right thing for me to do, that's the right thing for all of us to do. And he will do that, but not until Nathan has to step in and tell him the story and other things have to happen. And rather than stopping sin at one, two, three things, he's now going to add on to his sin, right? And that's what sin has the capacity to do. Uh, one lie causes us to lie again. One time of cheating on a test requires us to cheat on a test again. Uh, One time stealing uh, reinforces the, the notion that I can get away with stealing more and get away with that. All right, so what happens here is we have a plan, I put that in quotes, to cover up his sin. And someone in uh, 15 seconds or less describe what his plan is, maybe 10 seconds or less. Bring Uriah home, make it look like he's the, that he's the father. Perfect solution. And, I, and when I say perfect, I'm, I'm just not saying godly perfect, but I'm saying from a worldly point of view, that can make sense. Uh, there's a problem, though, and the problem is Uriah. By the way, where's Uriah from? He's a Hittite. Is there something, is there something about that that kind of strikes you? I mean, maybe it, it strikes me a little bit. He's a foreigner, He's a foreigner. so whether he, depending, I, I don't know what his relationship with God is. It's not delved out in the text. I my, I have some opinions on it, but the fact is, is he at this point whose character is better, the, the Hittite, the foreigner, the the non godly man at least at the outset of his life potentially depending on if he converted or whatever the case may be and came to serve god in a traditional way but that's the point that i'm trying to make is that you have this person who on the surface does not look like he should be doing the right thing and he excels and makes the godly man look very badly And we see that sometimes today in our society, if we're not careful, wherein people of the world can sometimes outdo us in doing good and put us to shame. I'm talking about us as individual Christians. And I've had a habit in my life where someone of the world has had more compassion than I would have had on someone. And I'm like, man, I could have done better. I, I could have acted better, or I, I could have handled myself in a better situation. And this person, who's not a believer, is conducting herself or himself in a much better fashion. Um, so, again, I think we need to appreciate Uriah's attitude. He says, Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink, lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So, um, again, we learn a lot about Uriah at this point. Uh, Let's go ahead and fast forward down, and we're skipping some things. If you want to come back and and develop those those themes a little bit, we can. But I want to go down actually to the death of Uriah because what happens next is he says, all right, if I cannot frame it so that it looks like it's his child, then I must remove Uriah. And who is the messenger to, uh, uh, well, let's just read verses 14 through 17 here, real quickly here. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab. And the great irony of ironies is who carries the message back? Uriah. Now, he, uh, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, I wonder if Uriah had it in his saddlebag. And he's like, <laughs> you know. Things would have changed. But, he, you know, I'm, no, I'm, just, I'm delivering the message. Maybe it was sealed, you know, in a, in a traditional kingly fashion or whatever the case may be. But verse 14, by the hand of Uriah. He wrote it in the letters Says, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle. Retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. And so it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab. Some of the people, the servants of David, fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. So one of the questions, and I don't know that I know the answers to it, uh, but what about the role of Joab here? Because we don't talk a lot about Joab, do we? We talk about Nathan, we talk about Uriah, we talk about David, we talk about Bathsheba. Is there something to be said about Joab here? He He doesn't have a problem with it. And have we seen that already? Go back to three weeks ago, four weeks ago, whatever it was. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, I forget the the adjective that Brother John and I were talking about a few weeks ago. But the whole point was is that Joab is the kind of guy you don't want to mess with. You wouldn't want to be caught with him being your enemy necessarily. Maybe your friend even. So Brother Sam here in front.
3: We don't necessarily know if he understood what was going on. What exactly
0: was happening? Right. That that may be true as well. I uh, just. sorted is the word that kept coming up over the last 48 hours as I'm reading this story and thinking about this and thinking about tonight is this is just a very sordid tale. Uh, And then drop down to verse 22. The messenger went and came and told David all that Job had sent him. And the messenger said to David, this is 23, surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. We drove them back as far as the entrance gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants' And some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. In verse 24, there's another little detail that's inserted. And it's not a little detail. But who else is dead besides Uriah? Other men. men. So now we usually focus in, and and I've been prone to do this in sermons or studies, whatever. Focus in on the death of Uriah. But you have the death of plural men. I don't know how many. I don't know if that's 20. I don't know if that's 50. I don't know if that's 100. It doesn't matter. It's at least two, but it's it's more than it needs to be. Dead individuals as a direct result of David's choice in delivering this message and this plan through Joab to Uriah. And we talk about, and I think I, yep, the very last application that I have is there are always opportunities for damage to sin that explode beyond the scope of the people who were first involved in the sin. Sometimes we use the term collateral damage, right? And I don't mean to use that lightly uh, because I don't mean that flippantly. But sometimes innocent people get hurt. Are there examples of sin in 2022 where innocent people get hurt? and the answer is yes think of one or two and i'm not asking you to dwell on this because that's kind of depressing but give me an example of collateral uh, where th- innocent people get hurt today drunk driver, drunk driver that's, that's that's one that comes to mind real quickly right so you have an innocent person or persons uh who are just going about their business and they're dead mass shootings, mass shootings right You have all this evil and these innocent people that die as a result of it. You have children that are sometimes born with deformities because of the poor choices of their mothers. Uh, I'm talking about willful poor choices of their mothers. I'm not talking about something that's out of their control. Uh, So just all kinds of just bad things happen when we are involved in sin. Uh, That's not to say that bad things don't also happen to those of us who are righteous but we take pleasure in our infirmities and we boast in those fir- infirmities uh second corinthians uh, 12 and we rejoice in our opportunity to suffer for the right sake blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake not just uh for the sake of being persecuted uh, jesus would say all right let 's go down to verse twenty six when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband and uh, I, I appreciate sam 's point about Bathsheba is just as responsible as and there may be some some subtleties to her fear or whatever but there's I, I, I feel a little sorry for Bathsheba i mean she I mean here now her husband 's dead I mean she have all these different things happening, one on top of another. And it's just a very sad thing. And then verse 27, it seems to me, is key and teaches us a number of lessons. It says, When her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. And then the very last statement that the Holy Spirit records for us is the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. I think that's interesting. It doesn't say the things he has done. It says the thing. And there, there may be some ways of... Uh, addressing why he says that. But the the point is not that. The point is God's not happy. And we have grieved God. Uh, Ephesians 4 talks about grieving God and our ability to grieve the Holy Spirit by our poor actions. And that's exactly what has happened here. God says, I'm disappointed with you. You think about a parent looking at a child and the parent saying, I'm just disappointed with your actions. And we as young children, we're usually very um, reflective and say, ah, it makes me feel horrible. Sometimes that's worse than the punishment is just hearing, knowing that we've disappointed our parents. Uh, The fact is, is God says I'm disappointed. Uh, Real quickly here, uh, three quick lessons from that, and then we'll open it up for comments. Then we'll go to chapter 12, and we'll spend uh, 10, 15 minutes there. One, God always knows our actions. Number two, doing what the Lord wants is more important than anything else. And thirdly, we can trick ourselves into thinking our sins are unknown. What does Numbers 32, 23 say? Beware, your your sin will find you out, your sins will find you out. The whole notion that we can trick others, we can hide in the garden, uh, we can keep ourselves secret from each other. To a degree, eventually it can come out, but ultimately the Lord knows all things. All right, I've said enough. Uh, other thoughts on Brother John here, and then other thoughts on Chapter 11 before we proceed to 12. All right, Brother John. Just
1: thinking about how, how evil this what David did was. We know he committed adultery. We know he essentially murdered an innocent man, but you know who Uriah was. He was listed among David's mighty men. Mm-hmm. So this man would have been among his most loyal servants. And so when he found out who Bathsheba was and knew who Uriah was, he knew where Uriah would be, right. out where he was supposed to be fighting his battles. So he should have been in high regard for Uriah,
0: but instead mm-hmm. he took his wife and took his life. Right. And is there any occasion, I'm glad that John mentioned that, uh, Brother Kerry all the way in the back, uh, Cameron. Uh, is there any occasion where it says that David was mournful over Uriah? No. He's so focused in on covering his, his sin, he's like, I don't care who dies, just as long as I don't get found out. Brother Carey,
1: I, I, I was just going to comment that when, when you think about David and the things that he's done here in this chapter, but yet he's described as a man after God's own heart, when you think about Paul— being a murderer of Christians, and then he becomes a Christian, you just can't help but think about the display of
0: God's grace and love for man. Great point. Great point. And that's a good teaching point because we are all, if you haven't already encountered a dozen of them in your life, you're going to encounter people who say, I can't be saved, I don't deserve salvation, I can't be a Christian because of all the yuck in my life. And David is a great point to say, and and Saul of Tarsus is a great point to say, here are people who had really ugly backgrounds, but yet are superheroes for God. So that's, that's, I'm glad that Carrie mentioned that. Brother Sam.
3: Maybe an unanswerable question, but did Bathsheba ever find out what David did? Hmm. And now-
0: I- did How does she react? So the question was, and I have an opinion on it, uh, but I'm not gonna share it right now. Uh, why don't you come back next week? But the question was, the good question, did Bathsheba ever know what had happened? Did she know the full story? Did she ever read Second Samuel eleven? Is the question. So quick thought, I mean, and all seriousness thoughts on that. Brother Shane. Uh I, I, I think she between the lines, yeah, that's a good point. But the same.
3: Well, while we're uh, addressing the wonder if questions, we often think about uh as David did, he thought he had a plan to cover his sin by having Uriah come back and and basically point to him being the father of the child. But what if the child had been born and grew up and looked and acted just like David?
0: Yeah. I thought that today as I was reading. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. The, the questions, you know, the thing about the questions that we wonder, they never get shorter. They always get longer in our spiritual quest to know more. And that's good. Okay, let's go ahead. We've got uh, 13 minutes here to cover uh, even a longer chapter. But we're familiar with chapter 12 with what goes on here. So we'll kind of uh, go through. Who is reintroduced at the outset of chapter 12? A man by the name of? Nathan, and uh, we first read about him in second Samuel chapter seven uh, verse two, I think it was, two or three. yeah, the king said to Nathan the prophet, and then we see Nathan introduced, so he's reintroduced here. He tells a story about a lamb. it's a parable, it's an allegory, it's a story um, and let's just Rather than summarizing it, let's just read it real quickly here. There were two men in one city, one rich, one poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, verse 3. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had... Bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate his own food, drank from his own cup, lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock, from his own herd, to prepare one for the wayfarer man who would come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Well, you don't even have to be an animal lover uh, to appreciate something's not right with that story. That's selfish. That is mean-spirited, that's rude, that's just wrong on a lot of different levels. And so what is David's reaction in the very next verse, which we didn't read? What's, what's the natural reaction? He is not happy, he's angry. The Bible says he is fierce, or that his anger was greatly aroused. So he thinks it's a real story. You can see David's face getting red and his blood pressure going up. He's like, let me, let me find him. Let me find this man. Why would this have mattered to David so much? Yeah, keep in mind his background. He would have taken this kind of thing very personally. And David, as a king, was also in charge of making sure justice was meted out uh, in his kingdom. And so this, there would have had multiple things uh, that we can appreciate. Uh, are there lessons that we learn from verse 5? The Lord, as the Lord lives... The man who has done this shall surely die. Is there, what, what do we learn from just that one verse? Brother Mitch. Your,
1: your sense of justice and righteousness can be
0: overridden by your own desires. Very good. Your sense of justice and righteousness can be overridden by your own desires. Very good. Brother Bruce. It's easy for us to see other people's sins uh, rather than our own. Absolutely. That, and that's, Those are the kind of areas I was going here. Yeah, it's very easy to say, well, shame on him for doing that but not reflect on ourselves uh, the choices that we make and then note if you would Nathan's words and the attitude in verse 7 verse 6 he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity Nathan said and this is I, I reference this almost every time I teach on verse 7 this is where the, the King James Version seems to have more punch to it he says David thou art the man you're the one I'm talking about. And you can see the blood drain from his face, at least in my mind. You can see David just almost collapse. I've been found out. And I'm seeing the sin, like Bruce talked about, in a way that I really should have been seeing it for the previous chapter and a half. Going all the way back to when I first did Rome. Brother Sam up here, uh, Cameron. Uh, Sam, We're going to be work workout tonight. I'm just giving you a workout tonight.
3: I I was just thinking about this, and and I've got a little note written up here. God didn't address this when it happened, Mm
2: -hmm.
3: and he didn't wait a couple days or a week. He waited nine months. Well, Mm -hmm. we assume it was a full term, nine months. Right. And then he comes down, and so that tells me that God takes care of things in his time Excellent. When he wants to, when he realizes that they can make the most uh, either, either blessing or punishment, whatever the benefit is going to be, God knows best. And that's right. how he handled this. Right.
0: And that, that lends into the idea that David thought he got away with this. Yeah. Brother Bruce over here. Uh, and then we'll go ahead and I want to progress to verse 13 here in just a moment.
2: I'm writing a sermon, so if you hear this again sometime in the next few weeks, don't get mad. But don't you think there was some relief in, in David? I mean, he writes the Psalms of this period where he talks about his his bones being broken and his uh, life just being miserable. Right. And you can imagine here was someone who was supposed to... Uh, As we might read this, uh, say this was God's favorite. How could he even Mm -hmm. do this? Wasn't it embarrassing for him to do that? Wasn't it exhausting and depressing to have to watch where you go and what you say and what you do as the king? Don't you think there was some relief when his sin
0: was exposed? I just, I, just, I just think that. I think, I think there is something to that. And think about, I mean, this is a very personal thing for all of us. Whenever we've done something wrong and we finally either get caught or we acknowledge the wrong that we have done and say I'm sorry to the person or to God, whatever the case, there's a relief. There's a sense of, because you're holding that in is not, is not meant to feel good.
2: But unlike we do, unlike
0: we do it on. Blame it on someone else right very good and in fact when you get down to uh verse 13 that's where david says i have sinned um so i've never i don't think i've ever told this story i don't know sure if wendy knows this story when i was about seven i was playing on my mama's bed and it was a wood post bed, and I was hanging on it, swinging on it, left and right, on at the, at the foot of it. And all of a sudden, I pulled the whole thing down. So what did I do? I just shoved it back and figured no one would ever notice. And then Mama and Papa got in bed that night. <laughs> well, they noticed. I felt horrible. So I wrote her a note, Mama, I broke your bed. Please don't come to me and say anything. I'm just sorry. So she comes. <laughs> so the next Sunday she walks into the building. I'm like, I'll see you. I'll see you. And she comes and she says, "Honey, it's okay. Don't worry about it. We thought it was kind of funny. So, as only a mom would do, right? So, okay. But I felt relief after that. I did. I was like, I felt bad about breaking their bed. Could have killed them. How do we know that David was contrite? And I referenced 2 Corinthians chapter 7. What does 2 Corinthians 7 verses 9, 10, 11 kind of uh, really focus on? talks about sorrow, right? There's a difference between sorrow of the world and sorrow of God. Um, How do we know that he's contrite? Just kind of a thought question. Okay, the Psalms, for, for one. Someone say something else over there? Psalm 51 is proof of it and other related psalms that Bruce is going to address in the next quarter. Next quarter, right? Okay. Um, In our Wednesday night studies. Uh, And we see the fruits of repentance. We see him say, you know what, that was wrong. And he, he spends, in my estimation, much of the rest of the next few weeks or if not months, if not years, having to think about this. Even though he's been, even though we've been forgiven, we still have regrets for the things that we've done. Uh, because even though the Lord may remember those things no more, we remember them ourselves, and sometimes we have to um, live with those things as punishment. Brother Mitch, uh, microphone's on its way in three seconds.
1: I mean, just uh, you know, the comment was already made. David is a man after God's own heart. I think you see that in this in the same way you see. Saul was not a man after God's own heart. When Saul had his failure with the Amalekites and destroying them utterly, when he was confronted with that, he didn't say, I am the man. He said, well, they made me do it. They, they did it. I, you know, I'm really sorry, but let's just go and let's pretend it didn't happen and we'll move on.
0: That is an excellent um,
1: point. And you, you see David reacting very differently here um, in how he handles that. He is respectful and fearful of the word of the Lord where Saul was not.
0: I almost created a slide with Saul on one side and David on the other side because that's a great comparison to look at the, the attitudes of the two. So I'm really glad you brought that up from 1 Samuel 15 to comparing 2 Samuel chapter 12. Okay, uh, I count four major punishments for David's sins. The most obvious one, number four, is, is what going, going backwards. The child's going to die. But uh, there's, there's three others here real quickly here in the final two minutes, and then we'll, have to, we'll stop there. And that is the sword in David's house. What's that mean, by the way? There's going to be a sword in his house. Division, Division trouble, fighting, all kinds of issues. It's not going to be peace. Two, trouble will come from David's own family. Uh, what I called wife-related embarrassment. Depending on the version that you're reading from, you get some other kind of words. And then the fourth of those is the idea that the child's going to die. Not the idea that the child's going to die, but the child is going to die, I should say more appropriately. All right, what we're going to do next week is we'll get into chapters 13 and 14. We will wrap up chapter 12 because I want to talk about the death of the son, uh, of the child, and then some lessons learned. So we'll stop there. Thank you all.